Dad Pod. Well, this is a video thing as well. Have a name. Podcast. A midlife crisis. Howdy, daddy. Mm. Midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Dadcast. That's not bad, actually. And you're very welcome along to a very special edition of Dadcast. We have a very special guest with us this week. Paul Howard is here to talk to us about uh, the new Russell Carroll Kelly tome, Schmidt Happens. Um, can you also predict the future for other sports events? How are we going to do in the Euros? I you know, when I, when I called the book Schmidt Happens, I thought it was going was gonna to have sort of happy resonances for people, you know. I actually envisaged, you know, Ireland will be involved in the World Cup right until the, the, the final day. And, um, you know, we, we'd, we'd win the trophy and, and people would say, oh, Schmidt Happens. Yeah. Uh, but actually, it still it's... Happen. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's there's, just there's a chance it just doesn't look like it at the moment, does not it? Right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, does that happen in rugby that a team, you know, goes into a tournament with bad form and then sort of, you know, tournament football? Definitely, you know, there's, yeah. there's tournament football where a team can start badly and then yeah. suddenly get it together. Something happens. I don't know if that, the same thing happens in there rugby. There are does it? a couple of examples. The World Cup in 07 in France, England were no hopers. Right, they yeah. They had pretty much jettisoned their coach. Mm. I mean, Brian Ashton was there in body, but he certainly wasn't there as an actual tactician. Mm. They got to the final, mm. and they ran South Africa, South Africa very close to the final. And then the French team in 2011 that pretty much also got rid of their coach, yeah. Mark Levermont, they managed to get to the final and should Wales have won. as well, I suppose. You know, Wales... Yeah, you know, played what you would call tournament rugby, you know, yeah. where it just sort of came together over. So, what you're weeks. suggesting is we sort of push Joe Schmidt to one side over the coming weeks, as as Rosser would say, <laughs> Schmidt happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> How far along the writing process does the name of the book come? Uh, sometimes really early, like I knew I knew Nama, there was going to be a book called Namamia about three years before I wrote it. Um, <laughs> But uh, quite often, what happens is I. I Are you walking around town with a giant smirk yes, on your face all say, day? Like when the, you've thought of that, big smoke. It's like this is amazing. Yeah. I'm like my own. Well, I have to be that. honest, right? But a lot of times, I don't have. I didn't have a title in March, and they they told me I had to have it in January for this book, and. Uh, so I was thinking of the autumn, and I, you know, I knew the World Cup was happening. So I thought, well, if it's coming out right in the middle of the World Cup, it needs to be kind of somehow related. And I thought Schmidt. Uh, Schmidt got Schmidt gets real. Schmidt happens. So the Schmidt happens is good. And then I needed a Schmidt storyline for the book. So sometimes that happens that I have to kind of um, you know just sort of force a Schmidt storyline. So there is a Schmidt storyline in it, and it isn't it isn't a sort of thin storyline. Um, Honor Ross's daughter sends his tactics book to Joe Schmidt. Ross has had this tactics book for years, so he goes to the Aviva and he sits with the guys in the Aviva and he watches the rugby with this book open on his lap in which he just keeps writing notes. And everybody around him, who's, you know, people who have the permanent seats and they turn back and they go, they just look at Ross, like taking the notes and they shout, did you get that, Ross? You know, and, <laughs> and it's kind of like, um, nobody knows the mystery of this book. Is it nonsense? Is it just cave drawings or is it just genius? <laughs> uh, and finally, Honor just is sick of, uh, her dad talking about about this tactics book just puts it in the post to Joe Schmidt, and Joe Schmidt rings him and says, you know, you know, what's in this book? You know, you need to get it out there. And Ross says, well, I mean, is it? Do you think it's great? Like, you, do you want to use any of the stuff? And he said, No, I've got ideas of my own. But if somebody who thinks about rugby this much should be doing something with it, so he encourages Ross to. You know, he says, you know, I started off teaching school kids how to play rugby. You know, and you know, you need to get in you know, get on the ladder. So to get on the ladder, Ross takes on the job of coaching the Facebook tag rugby team. <laughs> 
which is a start. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure if anybody has made the transition from tag rugby uh, to national coach in, in about three years that Ross thinks he's going to. But He'd start somewhere, though. Well, you do, yeah. And, and he's a it, former Andorra national rugby coach, isn't he? Yeah, and he kind of looped his way into that, yeah. into that job, you know. And, he got a massive uh, payoff for it as well. And there weren't great expectations on him when he was coaching the Andorra <laughs> rugby team. Uh, but there are huge expectations on him coaching the Facebook tag rugby team, though, because, you know, they're playing for corporate pride and as we against know, corporate Google. pride. Honestly, against against Google, you know, yeah. and so they call it, the, it's their El, El Clasico, they call it El Taxico. Um, <laughs> all the companies, those tech companies who are here for tax reasons. Uh, but they're playing for the pride, the pride of the, of the company. For Joe to have such a, a role in the book, like, does there need to be any pre-publishing correspondence in that regard? Uh, there does need to be. Uh, there wasn't in this case. <laughs> um, I kind of was, I, I was relying on them, on, on uh, people who told me that Joe had a great sense of humor, you know. The kindness and of then, strangers. Yeah, well, pretty much, yeah. And then as we got close to the event, I, I know Richie Murphy quite well, the, the kicking coach, and um, he, he asked me to do a corporate gig. It was actually a charity gig for um, uh, Purple House in Bray. Uh, and he asked me to interview Joe and him and uh, Simon Easterby and Andy Farrell on stage in the Burlington. And the book, they, were, they wanted to, Penguin wanted to announce the name of the book that week, I think on the Thursday. And I said, could you wait 24 hours? Like, because I'm seeing Joe Schmidt tomorrow and I don't really want it to, to get out, you know? But I had told, made the mistake of telling Richie Murphy that the book was called this. And he said, no, I won't say anything. I won't say a word, you know, keep it all. But I, I kind of understand the sensitivity. So anyway, the event starts and I asked Simon Easterby a question. And he said, well, before I answer that, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, what do you mean taking the piss out of uh, the national coach in the title of your new book? And I said, Joe is just glowering, glowering at me across the stage, and then, and then happily he, he smiled, he cracked a smile. But it was, it was, it was, it was nervous for a while. Yeah, we've all been in that position. Yeah. Over the, over the last six years. Has he cracked right. a smile at the end though? No. Never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe this was a, a title he really believed in, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, he probably, like us, is you know, going down the optimist route and think that it, Schmidt Happens will have a very happy ending. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Actually, there's a, there's a, document, a Ross documentary um, on RT on Monday night, and there's a moment where um, Adrian McCarthy from Wildfire has he's interviewed lots of people about Ross and he talks to Brian O'Driscoll about Ross and Johnny Sexton and he's cut this the, 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 they show the title of the book and Brian says something like you know I think the current title I always love the titles of the books but I think the current one is the best yet and then it cuts to Johnny Sexton sitting at his kitchen table and he just goes Schmidt happens Jesus, does Joe know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it was kind of like the head boy has found out that the head, the, the, knows something that might not please the headmaster. <laughs> That's a little bit of insight to their relationship. You mentioned Honor. Uh, this is obviously the dad cast. Honor is, I think, um, everybody's worst nightmare. And yet also in terms of what our children might end up becoming, but also, yeah, kind of quietly proud of uh, just the sheer blackguardness that she has in her character. Yeah, I, I, she's, she's still my favorite character to write. Um, She's uh, the only child that he has any real belief in. Yeah, I mean the trip, the triplets. He just thinks they're useless. Yeah, you know, he, he can see they're idiots. Like he knows, <laughs> he knew from the time they were two years of age that they were idiots. Um, 
Ronan, he has a great relationship with Ronan, but it's a kind of, it's always been an adult to adult relationship with Ronan. Whereas I think Honor is his pride and joy because she, she's a chip off the old block, you know? She doesn't, she's quite amoralistic, you know? Um, she's based on, all of the characters in the Ross books are based on, on real, uh, real people I know. Um, and Honor is based on a, on a kid, it's actually a, a boy, a little boy who used to go to a coffee shop I used to go to in Greystones on a Sunday morning to peacefully read the paper. And this kid was called Lorcan, Lorcan. And everybody knew Lorcan because Lorcan would just like run amok in this coffee shop while his parents just- Ignored? Ignored. Yeah, sort of casually looked over <laughs> occasionally. Encouraged? And no, it was kind of their time. They decided that it was their time and, and it was everybody else's job to put up. They put up with the kid all week. And <laughs> so now it was our time to put, to put up with him. Jeez. And Lorcan would, he, he'd put his finger in your, in your <laughs> <laughs> whatever you were eating Aww. like, you know. I remember I, had a, I was having a fry up one day and I was just getting ready to tuck into it and Lorcan came over, put his finger in the fried egg and just looked at me <laughs> and then walked off. So I said to Lorcan's mom, you know, Would you maybe you could put, the, put his finger in my fried egg there, you know. And it was kind of like, do you remember when people used to complain to, Man, uh, to Basil Fawlty about Manuel and he would just agree with them, like, I know, you just, but you only have to eat here, I have to live with this, like, you know? And that was her attitude, it was like, I know, he's terrible, he's absolutely terrible. <laughs> We've had discussions on the Dadcast where there's those moments where you kind of stand back with your wife and you think, We're re we really are great parents. Like, did you see what just happened? And, you know, maybe one little boy falls over and his big brother comes over and picks him up and gives him a hug and says, yeah, okay, I look what we're rearing here, they're great parents. Yeah. Honor is the only child that allows Ross feel those feelings. Yeah. She will do something probably involving ripping somebody off yeah. or splitting someone in half mentally and emotionally. Yeah. And he thinks to himself, I really am a great dad, haven't I? Yeah, see, it's the strength thing. Like, I wrote a scene early on, uh, with, uh, I think Honor was three or four, and she was in one of these Montessori schools where they were the little boaters and everything. And they, were, they had a sports day in Merrion Square, and the teacher was sort of explained to them all, you know, it doesn't matter who, everybody here is getting a medal. You know, just remember, it's the fun, the fun of taking part, that's the important thing. And Ross just said at the side of his mouth, says, you know, did you hear that? Yeah talking through her arse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, like it's her job to go out and obliterate the field. And it's an egg and spoon race. And she does it by tripping people up, mm -hmm. elbowing the dark arts, and he just, he's obsessed with it, that that's her instinct. And that's what Ross loves. He sees all of his instincts are alive in, in her, you know? Um, I mean, he's not above walking away, like she had a meltdown in Ikea once and he's not above just sort of, you know, let's, let's just go home. Like, <laughs> let's leave her here and just go home. Uh, That's not my child. <laughs> we, we have discussed that, the whole threat of leaving the child on the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. Of, is there ever a stage where you can actually do it? Yeah. I, I, like, I can mean, you leave the child on the side I of the road? I only have fictional children, so I'm, I, <laughs> I can quite easily leave them on yeah, the side yeah, of the yeah. road or in Ikea screaming. Um, I, I mean, I presume there are laws uh, stopping you we doing that kind of thing. It depends yeah. on how quickly you get back there. Yeah, it's like, a grey area. Yeah. 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 So it's you like know. scaring them straight exactly, to Exactly, yeah. Like when Ronan was a kid, Ross would sometimes, because he was obsessed with criminals, wrote, like Ross would sometimes bring him to Store Street Garda Station and just <laughs> ask him to lock him up for the weekend to kind of score, <laughs> to scare him straight. And then Ronan would come out of Store Street just hardened even more, like talking like, like he'd just done 15 years in the joy or something. Educated. Yeah, yeah, wiser, you know, yeah, and, and, and ready to face his future, future criminal career. Yeah, knowing the tricks. I do need to 
front up and you can't keep continue to make these threats and <clears throat> follow through on none of them. Like at some stage you do have to pull the car over, unbuckle their seatbelt and leave them on the side of the road. <laughs> now, you maybe do it within a hundred yards of the house. There's probably smaller threats you can start with, yeah. like <laughs> denying them sweets for a full week. See, the thing is, I, I, I suspect if you go big early on, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there back. has to be a scale, doesn't there? There has to be a scale back. of punishments. Well, this would be the culmination of a whole series, years maybe of being systematically <laughs> broken down by our, by our two children. I see that coming in about five It's not a knee reaction, yeah. Paul. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were only in the shops yesterday and I had the two of them. They were amazing, to be fair, but we had a deadline. We had to be somewhere. And there's one of those, um, you know, game shops with all the video games yeah. and the little statues and figurines and everything. So eventually, I, <clears throat> they're in there for three or four minutes. We have to go. So I go, right, lads, I'm off. And the older guy straight sees me going, He's leaving us. Let's go. The other fellow just stays where he is. And I, I was around the corner and almost at the key in the bloody car door before I realised he was still in the shop. Like, not a bother on him. Yeah, yeah. he so, sensed weakness in you, I think. Well, he? and he certainly called my bluff in, yeah. in a big way. So I can, I can never do that again because I know he will just stay there. And there will be a missing child in my hand at some stage. Yeah, yeah. not great. And then who's going to get the blame? <laughs> that doesn't really get exposed from the record. I mean, I, mean, I don't think you need, exactly. you need to ask that. I mean, I think you are responsible for him, aren't you? Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no period after a period of time where they go, OK, that's off day's record. That's like a lifetime thing. Every time everybody goes, oh, Dave McIntyre, he lost his child once. Yeah, exactly. Intentionally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll come up at his wedding and his kid's wedding and his, that kid's wedding. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's the David Cameron thing, isn't it? You know, David Cameron left his child in a pub. I didn't oh, know that. I didn't hear that. Well, I, I thought, I thought we were going to bring up the other David Cameron thing, but <laughs> that's okay. Well, oh, there, was, there was that David Cameron. I mean, actually, that's probably what I know David Cameron for most, those two things. That thing that we're not going to talk about uh, and leaving his kid in the pub and then destroying Britain's future well, as well. that was the one I, mean, I thought you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. I have them in hierarchy of, like, certainly the... Yeah, David Cameron, second. he left his kid in a pub and... For how long? Uh... An hour, I think. Oh! But what happened was, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the details. There was a sort of photo. There was a photo op. Was he prime minister at the time? He was prime minister at the oh. time. Yeah, yeah. Oh! Uh, and and wow. so he was, he was there with he was there with his wife. Samantha was she Samantha Samantha. I think so, yeah. And they were there with the kid, and he thought she was taking the kid home, and she thought he was taking the kid home. So he left, and then sort of it might have been an hour. It might have been ten minutes later. He had to double back and, and collect the kid. But it was, it was really interesting because any time he ever uh, mentioned uh, uh, when he was doing a sort of uh, thing about law and order and how we have to teach our kids, you know, uh, the difference between right and wrong from an early age, people could just come back and say, dude, you left your kid in the pub. <laughs> There's a metaphor there, though. I mean, he basically left the entire country in the pub for four years since, yeah. uh, since Brexit, and now it's completely screwed. Yeah. By the time this comes out, who knows? Well, the signs were there early on in his uh, poor, <laughs> yeah, poor childcare, yeah. <laughs> poor attitude towards childcare. The other thing that we talk about a good bit here is relationship with parents, and obviously um, Ross is blessed with one of the uh, great characters as a parent, and you know, has eventually come out from, I was going to say come out from the shadow. Has he come out from the shadow of his dad? Uh, Does he ever? I, t I think he's going to become his dad. I think, I think that's Ross's fate. Um, probably all of our faith. I was going to say. <laughs> He's going to become his father. I, see, I, when I covered schools rugby, I, I, I mean, I never actually watched the rugby, you know. I mean, that's how I was such a bad reporter. Like, but, you know, in the early days, I used to get, like, two, I got two solicitor's letters because uh, I used to always get names wrong and 
and, and they don't react well to that in rugby. Like, what so were the, what were the, like, had you said somebody had gouged somebody, or was it that bad? No, no, it just... no, no. I, I, it was actually so, somebody scored a try, <clears throat> and I, I, I attributed the try to the wrong kid. Everybody had two names. That was the difficulty. Everybody was just <laughs> full of double barrel names everywhere, and uh, I, 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 I gave the try to the wrong hyphen, and. Uh, I mean, I kind of, I, so anyway, I got a call from the Indo and I was about 17 or 18 at the time. I was just starting off and I get this call saying, we've had a solicitor's letter. And I was like that. I was thinking, what did I say? What did I say in that piece? And uh, he said, yeah, you got the name wrong. And I said, he sent a solicitor's letter for that. And he said, well, you have to understand that this father uh, has, has sort of picked this kid up at, you know, Hollis Street Hospital at Mount Carmel and told him, you are going to play for Ireland one day, you know? And it sort of raised him, like throwing a Gilbert ball at him, like, you know, before he could even put his hands up to catch it. <laughs> Kids probably had concussions right the way through childhood, <laughs> finally learned how to catch the ball and throw the ball, develops these skills goes to secondary school, you know, doesn't do any work. The father's done, it doesn't matter. I don't care how thick you turn out, you are going to play for the school one day. Plays Junior Cup really good, you know, gets on the Senior Cup team, works really hard, does no work at all, scores a try, and you get his name wrong. <laughs> so I kind of understood it when it was explained to me like that, that this, his father had probably told him he was the second coming. Like, and was it Vincent Brown who sat you down and told you that story and explained that this is the hierarchy <laughs> of needs that this man has? Was that, was, that, was that a conversation or was it no, the sports no, it at the time? The, it was someone in the Indo. It was somebody oh, Indo, working on okay, the markings right. desk in the Indo. And, um, and I, got, I, I got two of those letters. I got, I got na- but I got names wrong a few times or, you know, attributed tries to the wrong to the wrong character, but I think the reason was I was I was kind of more interested in what was happening back here. Yeah. I wasn't really exposed. I didn't know you went to Belvedere, I believe. Like you know, you keep it a secret. But I <laughs> I never um, I never went to a school. I never went to a rugby school. Like my school was a football school. I I had no interest in rugby growing up. Like Ireland won triple crowns. Didn't didn't watch it. Like it yeah. just didn't. It just uh, nobody where I grew up was interested in rugby. Uh, so suddenly I'm at I'm, I'm going to these matches, but it's that like it's the dads and the mums and the relationships with the kids that I found Even most fascinating. Even at that age, seventeen, eighteen, when you're doing the first markings, you're looking around, going, "Well, this is uh, like a um, kind of bizarre and exotic thing that I'm seeing." Yeah, here. yeah, it was re- it was really unusual. I mean, to see to see the mums. Uh, you know, basically wearing fur coat, like this baby seals. They're wearing like six or seven baby seals on their back, standing in the mud of Skerries watching Tarquin uh, or Treylock <laughs> throw the ball around. It, it was new to me. I'd never, I'd never, it, it was amazing as well because there was about like a thousand people at yeah. these matches. Yeah. And when like our school. Secret society you suddenly uncovered. Yeah, when our school played football, you'd. 12 people would stay back to watch it, you know, and uh, and they were really into it. And the dads never really left. Like, they still turned up at matches 30 years after they left school with the hip flask, you know, and to, you know, to shout, come on, rock, and all that kind of thing. It was just really, really uh, uh, interesting kind of, you know, world. It's an interesting world that I'd never had any experience of before. But the dads were brilliant. That relationship, I, I've told the story before about the... the the father, the kid who said to his dad, I don't give a fuck how you think I play, just crack open the wallet. And that was, like, that's the, that's the prototype for, for the Ross-Charles relationship. That's, that's the day well. Charles was born. Uh, I don't give a fuck how you think I play, just crack open the wallet. And the dad was just, <laughs> 
it wasn't upset. <laughs> if I spoke to my father like that, like you know, I would be orbiting the earth still. He just, <clears throat> the dad just sort of took it like this is what you ha- this is what you have to put up with when you're the the father of the future Ireland captain, you know. And it was how much the fathers believed in their sons, and how much resentment the sons seemed to have for the fathers. And then, and then the mums was different because they were in a, they were in their own little kind of social bubble. They, you know, they, when your son is on the senior cup team, you become part of a group called the senior cup moms. And the senior cup moms uh, end up having this whole new life uh, based on being a senior cup mom, which has nothing to do with rugby and has nothing to do with their sons. They're just, they're, they're just sort of on an elevated plane. And they go for lunch together, and they play they play golf together in Fox Rock Golf Club, and they have lunch in the Gables, or they have lunch in you know Donnybrook Fair, and the culmination of which, on March seventeenth every year, was the mother of the captain of the Leinster Senior Cup winning team presented the trophy at Lansdowne Road. Yeah, what? yeah, that yeah, was, that you know was the this? tradition the, every the year. The mother of the captain of the winning team Instead presents of the, her son with the trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the local priest or the the president of the GAA, it's the ma of the captain. Yeah. It's actually quite nice. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't give me goosebumps, but I mean, like I said, I'm not from that world. Neither am I, man. When, when, Ross won, when Ross lifted the Senior Cup in 1999, he told his mother it was on a different day, so she wouldn't turn up. And it was actually Mary McAleese who handed him the, the pass. Do you still go to Senior Cup games just to uh, make sure you're no, I did, on top I went, of... I went this year um, because we did some filming for the documentary at the Michaels Black Rock match. Um, it's still the same. I mean, the, the the standard of play is so much higher. I mean, it's kind of like you're looking at players, especially the Michaels players, you're kind of looking at them saying in about 18 months they'll be ready for the senior team. Like yeah. the, the standard is that high. Um, the, I mean, the crowd is amazing. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what they give those kids to get them so hyped up, you know. In the Ross books, uh, they, they always sort of... They, they had this meeting before they went to big matches and it was like a kind of Hitler Youth rally where they would just build them up. Like Father Fahley would make a speech which, which would be full of all these sort of... I was at those second, Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they do... For, for people who didn't books. go to that sort of a school who read your books, mm. they might think that you're painting an extreme picture, yeah. like a caricature of what it was no, really real. like. They are real. They are real, yeah, yeah. It is like, you know, we'll take the Sudetenland <clears> type <throat> stuff. And... But, but that match I went to uh, this year, it, it, it was like going back in time. It's exactly the same as 20 years ago. It hasn't changed at all. That tradition of the Black Rock fans get to the game about an hour and a half beforehand and they start singing. And they sing. They do not stop singing. There's no moment where they're a bit bored or their team is getting hammered and there's a kind of lull. They continue singing. They continue singing throughout the match. First half, they were beaten at half time, really. Second half, you couldn't hear the Michaels fans it's just drowned out by just song after song after song and they do choir practice you know they do they do choir practice which isn't hymns or the game it's you can't knock the rock you can't knock the rock you can't knock the rock um it's a weird amalgamation of american sports culture and gossip girl yeah (laughs) yeah and yeah it's kind of it's kind of it is that it's like friday Friday night lights Lights. yeah Yeah. it's a sort of jock there's the sort of jock culture the the idea of of young people as, as, you know, kind of teenage sports stars, as heroes among their peer group. But that's a very American thing, I think. But then there's a little bit of, of kind of eaten uh, how now brown cow uh, poshness thrown in there as well. I think it's a mixture of, that, of, of the two things. Uh, is there a GA equivalent? Have you? I, I don't, 
I mean, socially, it's not as interesting to me. Um, I, 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 I probably because I'm too familiar with it. You know, I'm too familiar with all those tropes. Um, but rugby was interesting to me because I had never. I was aware that privilege existed, but I'd never actually uh, been so surrounded by it. You know, and I've ne never kind of seen it up close uh, how it worked. That privilege hasn't really dissipated at any point. Um, our social mobility seems to have stopped in Ireland largely. Yeah. Maybe that's not true, I don't know. I, like, I, I, yeah, I think, it, I think it probably is true. Um, I think when I started writing Ross uh, 20 years ago, <coughs> I, I had a huge chip on my shoulder about class. And class was, class was a huge issue uh, uh, when I was growing up. And it was certainly a huge issue for me, like being working class and being aware of uh, of, of this privileged class that I wasn't part of. So I was very chippy, and I think a lot of those early Ross books were born out of uh, just that anger that I felt towards that class of people. Um, I, I'm part of that class of people now who are kind of processed into, into the middle class through, uh, you know, uh, having, having a decent job, um, driving a car, uh, owning a house, um, that I'm essentially I'm middle class now, you know, no matter how much I try to fight it. And lots of my friends as well, they're exactly the same. They were processed by those Celtic Tiger years. Uh, friends I grew up with in Ballybrack are, have hot tubs in their garden now, you know. It's <laughs> which I still find quite funny and unnerving to go into a friend's house and go out to the back garden and mum and dad and the kids are all <laughs> lying back in the hot tub, you know, in their swimming trunks in March. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you, Paul, we're obviously all dads here and we, we spend an hour every Friday chatting about that fact and you, you've described yourself as a fictional dad and these are all fictional children. Do you feel like a sense of protection towards Ross, like he is your creation? You've, you have essentially fathered him from what, he was 17 probably yeah. when, he, when he was created and he's yeah, now yeah. in his... Breastfed him for the first few years as well, go. you know. Yeah. In his late 30s, early 40s, he did his leave and start the year after me, like I grew up. Right. my twenties reading him and I always felt well like we're living in the exact same era here yeah. so that's why everything was so relatable yeah. are you proud of his achievements are you proud of his abilities or lack thereof as a father are you, are you protective of him yeah it, what's it, your relationship with him the only thing he the only thing he's actually good at is being a father and that's what that's kind of you know that's I think that gives the, the, the most recent books their energy it's his it's his struggles to be a good father and how he accidentally pulls it off and it's due to the fact that his instincts are quite good. So he's got the triplets now, and uh, Surika had this idea that she would, she would, she read in a, in a magazine, I think the Irish Times magazine, that you shouldn't correct your children if they use bad language. So she's gone with this because she's read it and it was quite a persuasive article. So the kids are just effing and blinding at each other. And the idea is, that if they, you know, if you don't, if you do correct them, you create taboos around mm. certain words and certain behaviours. <clears throat> but if you just leave them to it, they eventually grow bored of it. And three and a half years on, they're not getting bored. <laughs> they're actually, <laughs> they're getting, they're getting more and more creative with with the swearing. <laughs> Ross's instinct is just to shout, "Stop!" and swearing at them. And he's he's he stopped from doing that by his virtue signalling wife. Uh, and, but his instinct is, is correct. That's exactly what will stop them from doing it. So in this book, he just loses it one day and, and tells them to stop swearing. And the behavior stops immediately. Um, so 
it, it's all those things. It's his relationship with Ronan. It's his relationship with Honor. They're 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 skewed. Like they're not they're not normal uh, father daughter father son relationships. But he's doing something right in there. If you ask him what he's doing right, he wouldn't know. But a lot of it's common sense. Some of it's just winging it. Mm. Um, so aren't we all doing that? We're all getting it right by accident. None of us really know what we're no. doing. If we're getting it right, getting it right is the, the, the jury's we'll out. We get it right sometimes, and we'll get it wrong sometimes. Like you, you, you're talking about, like you don't really know what you're talking about because you've no experience of it yourself. Yeah. But you, your own instincts on that are absolutely spot on. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I was a son. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm a son, and uh, <clears throat> so I probably would rely a lot on you know those lessons I learned from how I was parented, okay, <clears throat> rather than how I would parent. Um, but it was kind of the same in our house as well. Like, you know, there were things we, there was things we could get away with and there was things, you knew what, you know, the what you could were. push, you know. If you, I just grew up in a house where if, if it was funny, if, if you made your mother and father laugh, you could <laughs> you'd probably get away with it. Like, I remember when I was a kid, uh, we, we used to have to collect um, for the the St. Lawrence College was the school I went to, St. Lawrence College Christmas Bazaar every year. And used to have to go around with a shopping trolley door to door saying, do you have any foodstuffs for the St. Lawrence College Christmas Bazaar? So people would give you a tin of beans or a tin of peas and, and they'd be sold at a stall. And I remember coming home with a friend of mine, we'd been out collecting and we sat down at the kitchen table and we, we started cutting the labels off the, the tins and switching them around, right? So <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite clever looking back, you know? It was only, it was only about 11. So I put, the, I put the mixed fruit on the peas and the beans on the, you know, the prunes and mixed them all around. And I remember my mother walked into the kitchen. She said, what are you doing? And there's a kind of moment where I think, I just come clean here. And I said, we're cutting all the labels off the tins and switching them around. And she just looked at me and she said, I'll go get you the good glue. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of what it was like in our house. That if it was funny, they were in on the you could, Yeah, yeah, you could you could sort of get away with stuff like that. And I noticed that when I'm writing Ross, it, especially in his relationships with with Honor and Ronan, that it, it, he's an, he, his instinct is to scold, like to say, you know, don't, no, don't do that. Like that's a bad idea. But if it kind of puts a smile on his face, like so in the current book. Um, Honor is telling him uh, she was in school and one of our friends in school said she got a new dog and everybody's doting over her, looking at the picture of the dog. And Honor asked, what breed of dog is it? And the kid says, oh, it's a rescue dog. And Honor said, but that's not a breed of dog, you know. So she, anyway, she launches into this rant and, you know, she's, she's saying, you know, you're, you're this, that and the other. And this, the head nun in the school calls to see Ross and Ross has to go up and face the music. But he asks Honor what happened, so she tells him that story, and there's this smile just appears in his face because he knows she's right. He knows this girl is just looking for people to say, "Aren't you so good to take <laughs> on a rescue dog?" Instead of just saying, "It's a palm or it's a you know, <clears throat> it's a basset or it's an Alsatian or whatever." With all you know of the school structure in South Dublin, should I send my children to a private school? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking you this seriously, which I can't afford. But are they, is it going yeah. to be? Is my sacrifice going to be worth it in years to come? Well, that's the thing. You can you can never tell. You know, depends whether they play um, for Ireland or not. Yeah, that's, well, so. that's it. They could play for Ireland, or they could be involved in a banking scandal. You know. <laughs> But One of those two. There are no, there's no third option. Either way, they probably won't go to jail if they go to the right school. Okay.
<laughs> that in itself is worth the investment. Has the chip on your shoulder, I mean, obviously, you're, those, you said those books were written out of anger, which is just yeah. they're not written out of anger anymore. That's all gone as, as you've been processed. Yeah, I mean, I, I notice it. I mean, I do, sometimes I write something and I read it back and I go, God, there's still a bit of resentment in you, Howard. Um, it, I mean, it's, I'm, certainly not, I'm certainly not as kind of angry as I was as a young man, that's, as a young man, and that's entirely natural, you know, when you're 17, 18. But you don't uh, look back at yourself and go, you were wrong, that's the thing. Like, it's like, that, that was right, it was a little bit angry, fair enough. Yeah. I've calmed down, I can still make the same points. Yeah, I can. I, I think that the, one of the things that changed for, for me was that uh, they became my audience. The people, I was, the people I was sending up actually became the audience. In the documentary, there's, there's footage of me reading to the kids in Blackrock College. I, mean, I get invited there for, like four or five times a year to entertain the kids, so I'm kind of their <coughs> fool. You know, like Alan McGinty, the principal, rings me and says, oh yeah, the Leavenstead students are studying really hard here. Would you just come in on Thursday evening and just give them, you know, an hour of entertainment, you know? So it is like ringing a bell, the king ringing the bell, and I Even come. the very fact that they like ring you from Blackrock College. <laughs> that in Ballyhollis they never said, the kids are stu studying very hard. Let's get an author, let's get someone in to entertain them for an hour. <laughs> and I go, like a big idiot, like, you know, four or five times a year, I drop what I'm doing and I go up, you know, can you do the literary, literacy week this, this year and... Uh, Undercover research, really? Uh, a little bit, like I do, I get a lot out of it, like, you know, this, like this, when I went up to give the senior cup team their pep talk before they played Klongos in the school's cup a few years ago, I really did that, like, you know, I stood on the stage, <clears throat> there's sort of 15 players behind me standing like this, and the, the ranks of, of students, you know, first year all the way to six at the back chat, you can't knock the rock, you can't knock the rock, and I gave them just the speech that Father Fahedi gave to the Castle Rock College kids. I basically said, uh, you know, you are the gilded ones, you are the golden generation, your fathers are incredibly wealthy, and after today, <laughs> you'll never have to work hard for anything else in your lives again. They cheered every line, like that was the, that was the thing that freaked me out. I thought, as I was saying all this stuff, I was thinking, they knew I that you were taking, tell yeah. me that you felt we're all in on this joke. Yeah, and they do, this, this is the thing I discovered while writing Ross. They have a sense of humor about okay. themselves. They take themselves incredibly seriously in one way, but, but they, I think there's a sense of irony there. I mean, did you see the, did you see the video of the, the Blackrock College Syndicate who have the horse? Yes, the, yes. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think that's as serious as it looks. I think they're laughing. They're taking the piss out I think they are, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you sure? Know, I'm not sure. I just wasn't sure. I was looking back on it. <laughs> this could go either way here. I'm not sure. Is it that unless you're one of them, only then do you know if they're taking the piss? I, I totally agree with you. I think that's exactly what it is. I think anyone who went to Blackrock and knows them in Blackrock would look at that and go, oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, being, they're being comically arrogant. I think they're playing up to a stereotype. They're kind of being their dads in a funny way, I think. You know, they're pe you know that, that, that personality, mm. that Charles Kelly personality. Um, I, th I think so. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> I hope you're right. What's the future for uh, for Ross? Um, well, is Ross going to be part of your life forever? Do you think? I don't. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it was originally supposed to be a trilogy, and Schmidt happens is book nineteen. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's out the window. Uh, I've I've started work on book twenty, so there will be a book twenty. Um, I don't know beyond that. I t I tend to. I just I do. Uh, sort of two year. I, I, every two years, I sign a contract to do. 
two new books. Is it um, as enjoyable now? Yeah, it's more enjoyable actually. I mean, that's it's the key. More enjoyable. Once, once you no longer enjoy it, you'll stop. Yeah, sometimes I look back on some of the middle <clears throat> books, the, the the maybe sort of sort of six, seven, eight. And it was Celtic, there were the Celtic Tiger years. And I think towards the end of the Celtic Tiger, I was kind of feeling I'd, I'd done it all. Like yeah. I'd, I'd sufficiently sent it up. Uh, and, then, and then the recession happened. And, and it was suddenly interesting to write about this kid who's told by his mum and dad that he is the second coming of Christ, essentially. And then suddenly all of these uh, uh, you know, certainties that underpinned his life are just blown away. And he has to actually make it in the world and work like he thought he'd never have to. Um, and now these these last few books where you know the central theme is fatherhood you know and and is he is he winning at it or is he losing at it that's you know that's the sort of even though he's playing rugby and trying to make it as a coach his real job is what he does at home and how those kids are going to turn out the um the other thing is that you've got loads of other projects on the go obviously you've got the musical um you finished a book that you'd been working on for was it seven years for I read the news today. Yeah, ten years. Ten yeah, years. yeah. Is there another one of those in the background as well at the same time? I don't. I haven't started anything. Um, I, 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 one book I've always wanted to write is, I think there's a, a great book to be written on the Northern Ireland World Cup team of 1982. Yeah. Within the within the political context of the times, it's an amazing story of this team of um, you know I think the starting eleven against against Spain, there was six Protestants and five Catholics uh, during the, the, the worst years of the Troubles. You know, the, it, you're talking 80, 81, 82, the hunger strikes the, and the maze breakout afterwards. They were the really sort of darkest, bitterest years of the Troubles. And kind of like the Barry McGuigan thing, that the, you know, they, they persuaded Catholics and Protestants to get behind them. Yeah. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's a great untold story. Um, but I, I, I'd love to tell it, but I, I don't have time at the moment. But yeah, but it, that is something to. in the background. And is it easier to do those type of books if you want to now because you had the success of this? Or, yeah, I mean, it's. I suppose it's given me. It's given me a bit of um, financial independence. I suppose that I, ca I can take on a project like the Tara Brown book. I took on that, and uh, you know, it didn't. It didn't matter if every week wasn't a paying week. You know, I could take. I could take a week where I didn't actually write anything. I didn't take on a newspaper column or. Or I wasn't writing a play or something yeah. like that. Um, you can you can sort of in, afford to indulge yourself in subjects that interest you. And Coppers, the musical keeps coming back, so that's yeah. The, we did the second second run this year, and we're, we're hoping to tour it next year. We want to bring it to Cork, uh, Limerick, Galway, possibly Killarney as well, um, and you know give people in Kerry something to smile about. <laughs> <laughs> when is oh, the uh, fortune in case this goes out after uh, after Kerry won on Sunday? When is the Paul Howard Declan Lynch documentary of oh, yeah. together watching Liverpool games? Oh, twice listen, a week gonna you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Declan will be happy, you know, <laughs> to get two cameras in the room next time we watch Liverpool. It's, uh, I mean, to be honest, like a lot of it, a lot of it wouldn't would be unwatchable. I think you know because a lot of it is just. Head they said that about Soccer Saturday and Box, and it turns out that actually yeah. people want to see this stuff. But we could go through half an hour of communicating with each other silently, you know, <laughs> just through our anguish, um, through you know sad faces and disturbed faces and uh, um, and and stress. Like it's all it's, there's a lot of stress in the room as well. Um, and it's not enjoyable. It's not. <laughs> it's not enjoyable to be there. Like I get. I get pretty worked up when Liverpool play. Declan does as well. I mean, during all those years uh, where Liverpool had a terrible defence, 
and they seem to spend the first half setting a score for the opposition to, ch to chase in the second half. Mm. All those years when they'd be three nil up and. It, well, this is only three, four far, years ago now. It was far from secure at three nil, like you know, three nil or four nil is the worst lead you can have in football when you're <laughs> Liverpool. And those years in particular, it was um, you couldn't, you just couldn't relax. Like even five minutes from the end, Declan three nil up, Declan wouldn't believe this is over. <laughs> Well, and sometimes he was right. <laughs> yeah, but with Van Dyke now, it's, it's actually it's it's yeah. taken some of the, the pressure. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's ruined the drama. <laughs> wait, wait until uh, Alison actually comes back before you all start counting your chickens. Because uh, Adrian ain't no Alison. Uh, listen, no. it's been great having you, and thanks a million for being on right, sure. Thanks for When is the book in shops? It's in shops now. Yeah. Okay, it's so it's called now. Schmidt Happens, and um, uh, the <laughs> we hope it's very appropriately named and that it's a celebration, as Dave puts it. But we'll see. Yeah. Paul Harrod, thanks very much. Thank you. That was great. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, pleasure.